Well, greetings to all of you meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are tuning in online, and those of you who are also meeting in one of our other regionals in Airdrie, Bridgeland, the Crowfoot Theater in Northwest Calgary. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as, as we read the next passage in our study together, beginning verse 38. You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for your word and how it speaks to our lives in so many different ways if we would but be open to you speaking to us. And I ask, Lord, that in this moment you would soften our hearts, you would focus our minds, and then, Lord, as we hear from you, that you would give us the courage and the will to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so let's face it. There are people in our lives that we love dearly. And then there are people that we love not so much. So I'd like you to think about the person that you love the least. And you say, oh, pastor, I'm a Christian. I love everybody. <laughs> well, that's just so wonderful. God bless you. Okay, so if that doesn't work for you, think of the person that you like the least. You've got to have an answer for that one. How about the person who is a hypocrite in your mind? The person who talks a good talk, but their walk doesn't match their talk. How about the person who hurt you, cheated you, humiliated you, maybe took advantage of you in some way? Now you've got another problem, right? You've got so many on your list, you don't know who to choose. <laughs> but you know, try to narrow it down to one or two, okay? One or two. All right. The person you like the least, do you have them in mind? This is important. Now for the tough question. If it were in your power to help that person prosper financially or to prosper in their career, or if it were in your power to help this person become famous, admired by all, would you do it? In Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, followers who are part of his kingdom will love their enemies. They will do everything in their power to bless or extend grace to their enemies. Now, I don't need to tell you that this was a radical, outrageous concept in the minds of those who heard Jesus teach this. This was totally counterintuitive to what they considered to be rational thought. And Jesus says, look, you need to understand I'm not talking about the typical person down the street here. No, no, I am talking about my followers, people who are part of my kingdom. Of course, the natural person will not love his enemy. 
But you see, if you only love those who love you, then you're just like everyone else. My followers have a different focus. They have a different attitude and a different set of priorities than those who follow the king of this world. My followers practice a radical love, a love that sees everyone through the eyes of God. So what exactly did Jesus have in mind when he said, love your enemy? Well, he had two major things in mind. First of all, in, 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 in verse 38 to 42, Jesus says, you demonstrate love for your enemies when you repay evil with good. And secondly, in verse 43 to 48, Jesus says, you demonstrate love for your enemies when you wish God's blessing on them. Now, in this message, we're just going to look at the first of those two, loving your enemies by repaying evil with good. So let me ask you, what is your gut reaction when someone lashes out at you? What's your reaction when someone insults you or humiliates you? When a, when a, when a driver cuts you off on Deerfoot? When a, an associate takes credit for your idea? When a spouse reaches into the past and pulls out an ugly memory and throws it in your face? When your supervisor embarrasses you or demeans you in some way. When a business partner takes advantage of you financially, what do you feel like doing? Is your first thought to turn the other cheek? To go the extra mile for them? To bless them in some way? Now, you know, I don't know about you, but that is usually not my first thought. Let's be honest, in that moment of hurt, our first reaction is to get even. Whether it's a sporting event, whether it's a social event or at work, we all know those initial feelings that scream for revenge when we have been humiliated in some way. Your adrenaline is flowing, your anger level is skyrocketing, your honor is at stake here. You know you could knock this guy into the middle of next week if you wanted to, and here it is, the moment of truth has arrived. What are you going to do? Well, we know what the typical person in our society today would tell you to do. They'd say, hey, return the favor and add a little bit of interest. Hit them back and here, wear my brass knuckles. Yeah, yell at her, but add a little bit of volume. That's a natural man's way of thinking. And in the early years of civilization, that is exactly what happened. You see, here you have two guys from two different tribes. They happen to be having breakfast at the local caveman's diner. Now, we don't know why, but somewhere along the way, Adam, one of these guys, insults Ben. And Ben is enraged, and he hits Adam. Adam gets even more angry and slashes Ben with his knife. Ben gets totally out of control, takes his club, and kills Adam with his club. Adam's families not only kill Ben, but his entire family. Ben's enti entire tribe get enraged, respond by attacking Adam's entire tribe, 
And surprise, surprise, we have another war on our hands. And you see, this escalation of retribution happens every day in marriages, in families, in ethnic groups, between nations. We read about it constantly. And so God permits Moses to enact a law that puts limits to the escalating and runaway cycle of retribution. For example, in Exodus 21-23, the law reads like this. If there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, unfortunately, one of the things I've noticed is that when, when people who have no background in understanding the Bible, when, when they open up the Bible and they read a verse just like you saw on the screen in front of you, they wrongly conclude that the Old Testament's filled with bloody, savage, merciless laws. Have you ever run into someone who's said that about the Scriptures? And yet that is not the intent of this law. In the same way that Moses sought to prevent the number of divorces from escalating right out into the stratosphere by enacting what is referred to as the Bill of Divorcement, the main intent of the legislation here was to control the escalation of anger and violence and revenge. Moses was not saying to the people, you know, hey, you guys are too easy on each other. Stop being such wimps. Fight back. I mean, if someone bloodies your nose, bloody their nose. If someone dumps your Coke, you know, spill their Pepsi. If someone kicks your dog, boot their cat. Yes, boot their cat. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but you see, that wasn't the point of this law at all. God's ideal standard is this. Treat people with dignity, courtesy, and respect. We see this clearly spelled out in Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, this is God's ideal this law, this law of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is an accommodation to our fallen nature. No differently than the bill of divorcement was an accommodation to man's hardened heart. It is, it is as if God is saying here, if you are ever abused or ridiculed or taken advantage of, and if you feel that you must be compensated in some way for the pain you have endured, the loss you have suffered, the standard of the Old Testament law is that you must limit the extent of your retaliation to the precise amount of damage that someone has done to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and nothing more. 
Now, I should also point out that this law never was never intended to give individuals the right to take matters into their own hands to exercise vigilante justice. Deuteronomy 19 verse 18 says, this law is to be entrusted to a judge or a court of law, and the punishment is also to be determined by that court of law. Furthermore, this law was never carried out in a literal way, at least not in Jewish culture. We know of some cultures where this law was enacted in a very literal way and is in some parts of our world. But in Jewish law, that wasn't the case. In other words, if you knocked out a person's tooth, they didn't have your tooth knocked out as punishment. Rather, what the Jewish courts did was they would assess the amount of injury, pain, lost time at work, the humiliation. They would somehow assess that um, and then they would make the perpetrator pay damages for it. And so with all that background in mind, we come now to our scripture lesson here in Matthew 5.38, in which Jesus says, You have heard that it was said. Again, this was, you won't find what's, you won't find this necessarily um, uh, in the Old Testament, some of the things that Jesus refers to in the Sermon on the Mount. But he says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, of course, the question that comes immediately to mind is, does this mean that we should become passive and let others walk all over us? Does this mean if we're attacked by a drunk or a violent person that we should do nothing to protect our lives or the lives of those that we love? Of course not. If law and order in our society is to be maintained, these kind of people need to be restrained and restricted. The Apostle Paul, for example, wasn't being passive when he demanded his rights as a Roman citizen in Acts chapter 16. In this context, the word resist, when it says do not resist an evil person, that word resist means retaliate. He's talking about revenge, not self-preservation. Jesus is not asking us to be weak and passive. He's actually calling us here not to be vindictive. You see, the natural man's response to a person who hurts him is to seek revenge, to hurt him back. The natural man's desire is not to do away with the evil, but to do away with the evildoer. However, when you surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, and Jesus invades your life, that begins to change. Because Jesus is changing you from the inside out. Now, as a follower of Jesus, when someone does evil to you, your first reaction may be to seek revenge. But your desire begins to change from doing away with the evildoer to doing away with the evil itself. Your heart's desire increasingly points in the direction of loving your enemy and destroying the evil. So how do you love your enemy, the evildoer, and still destroy the evil? 
Daryl Johnson says, you don't destroy evil with evil or by retaliating. You just escalate it. Neither do you destroy evil by being passive, standing there and letting someone beat you up. No, you destroy evil by deliberately taking the initiative to overcome evil with good. Now, to help us to understand what he's talking about, Jesus gives four illustrations from everyday life. And we see the first one right here in verse 39. To begin with, we overcome evil with good when we don't respond to insults. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, in first century culture, if you wanted to really insult someone or express disgust to someone, you gave that person a backhanded slap across the face. Now, in our culture, it would be like spitting someone in the face, sort of have the same effect. Now, I point that out because Jesus is talking about something deeper than physical violence here in this illustration. As I said, a backhanded slap in that day was actually a gesture of contempt for a person. And so, in essence, what Jesus is really saying here is if someone publicly humiliates you or assaults your dignity and your self-esteem, don't retaliate. Don't return the insult. Love your enemy and destroy the evil by overcoming that evil with good. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not say, let him slap you on the other cheek. No, Jesus says, turn to him the other cheek also. In other words, he's saying, don't be passive and just let him hit you again on the other cheek. Rather, take charge of the situation and engage him by deliberately, deliberately turning to him the other cheek. When you do that, you are attacking your enemy back with love. You are saying to him, I am freely choosing not to escalate the hatred, the abuse, the verbal assault by hitting you back, but instead to overcome evil with good. Proverbs 12, 16 says, a prudent man overlooks an insult. So let me take you back for a moment to your least favorite person for a moment, okay? You know that person who humiliated you in public? That person who was totally insensitive to you, who cared only for themselves and for their plans and walked right over your feelings. That person who treated you badly or spoke to you in an unkind way. Have you forgiven them? Or are you still holding them hostage? Are you still seeking revenge? Giving them the cold shoulder? Looking for any possible reason to keep casting them in a negative light to others that you know? Have you just kind of written them off? Christ's followers are gracious and forgiving 
and they extend grace liberally to others because they know that they have been recipients and are recipients of the wonderful, amazing grace of Jesus. Christ's followers aren't hypersensitive or easily offended. They don't make others feel that they're walking on eggshells every time you talk to them. I mean, have you ever been around people who are that way? You're afraid to say something because the chances are really high they're going to take it the wrong way. As Christ followers, we don't fight back to preserve our reputation or our sense of dignity because, you see, our dignity and our self-esteem is not derived from what other people think about us or say about us. It is derived on the basis of what the Lord thinks of us and says about us. Folks, we are loved by the Lord and King of the universe. We are highly valued by him. We are the apple of his eye. We are created in his image. We are redeemed by his death on the cross for us. That's how much he loves us. When we hold on to bitterness, when we are still harboring grudges against other people, it shows that too much of our focus is still on us. Too much of us is still too concerned about what other people think about us rather than basing our identity on who we are in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, we overcome evil with good when we don't respond to insults. Furthermore, we overcome evil with good when we freely do more than is required. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, and if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, at the time of Christ, clothes had a great deal of value. They were not easily come by. And that's why people would sue for them. And also why soldiers would cast lots for Jesus' coat or his outer robe when he was dying on the cross. Often a person would give his tunic or be like a shirt, which was kind of this long inner garment that was made of cotton and linen. Often a person would give that tunic as a down payment on a loan. I mean, that's how valuable it was. But rarely would he ever give his long outer coat because he needed it to stay warm at night. In fact, Jewish law said that if the outer coat was used as a pledge, it would have to be returned by evening for it was a person's only covering by night. And so when Jesus said we should give our coat as well, he was not necessarily saying that we need to give up every last possession just because someone asks it of us or demands it of us. Rather, he wants us to have an attitude that does not insist on our rights, an attitude which does not find its security in things, but in God. Now notice Jesus does not say, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him sue you for your cloak as well, or your coat as well. No, Jesus does not say, let him sue you. 
That's being passive. Jesus says, let him have your coat as well. In other words, exercise your freedom in Christ and your conviction to overcome evil with good by freely giving him more than what's required. Let that be your spirit. Say to your enemy, I may not be able to change the resentment, the bitter feelings that you have toward me, but as much as I can, as much as it depends on me, I want to settle this dispute that has led to this lawsuit in a way that shows that I've gone beyond what's required. So if I owe you my shirt, then please take it. If throwing in my coat will help erase the bad feelings and make things right, then please take that too. Now, I know as you mull that over, that isn't sitting too well with you, is it? It sure doesn't sit real well with me. But you see, the only way that we can live with this kind of radical love is if we truly believe that our security is not found in our bank account. It's not found in the things that we possess, but that our security ultimately is found in God. Let's be honest, our need for security is so great that we not only tend to stockpile far more than we need, but we also tend to refuse to give up a cent more than we absolutely have to give. And Jesus is challenging us not to have that kind of mindset because our ultimate security isn't found in a bank account. It is found in God and God alone. One day, every one of us will realize that if we don't realize it now. When we stand before him, when we breathe our last. The psalmist says, those who trust in the Lord are steady as Mount Zion, unmoved by any circumstance. Isaiah 26.3 says, you, Lord, give true peace to those who depend on you. Jesus challenges us to live with eternity in mind, to find our sense of safety and our sense of security in him. Think of the millions, the billions we spend as as a society on safety and on security. Think of the hours and hours and hours of worry that we have, you know, trying to protect ourselves and our families. In the end... if we really think about it. Really, there is no place that is safe. There is no bank account that's secure. It is only the Lord in which we find our security. And once we understand that, we're going to be less concerned about our right to hang on tight to our stuff and more open to doing things, doing more than what is required of us. We overcome evil with good when we don't respond to insults, when we freely do more than is required. Thirdly, we overcome evil with good when we serve others freely. In verse 41, Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now in those days, Israel was ruled by Rome. 
And so a Roman soldier had the legal right to approach any civilian any time of the day or night and demand that they make a meal for him, that they do his laundry, that they provide lodging, or whatever else the soldier figured needed to be done. Now, the Jews particularly hated it when a Roman soldier made them carry his baggage. No matter what the civilian was doing, whether he was sleeping or plowing in the field or whether he was selling merchandise, if a Roman soldier asked him to carry his luggage, he would have to quit what he was doing and do whatever the soldier asked. But there was a limit. They could force a Jewish man to carry baggage no more than a mile at a time. And so I want you to put yourself for a moment into the sandals of a typical Jew in that day. A Roman soldier grabs you by the scruff of your neck and he pushes a heavy 85-pound bag into your stomach and he says, hey, baggage boy, carry this. And as you strain and as you struggle to carry it, he walks leisurely beside you, drinking a Slurpee and eating grapes. So how does Jesus say that we're to respond in that situation? When you get to the end of your obligatory mile, instead of slamming the suitcase down and spitting on the ground to show your contempt not only for this soldier, but also for this detestable practice, Jesus says, express love for your enemy by freely offering, freely, freely offering to take his baggage another mile. In this, says Jesus, you are overcoming evil with good. You're communicating through your attitude that true freedom is found in Jesus. You see, Jesus is challenging us here to not always think about our right to do with our time and our energy as we like but rather to maintain an attitude of gratitude to God for giving us the resources, for giving us the health, the ability to be of service to other people. When a task is laid on you, even when it infringes on your time and on your plans and messes up your holiday schedule, don't do it as a grim duty to be resented. No, do it freely as a service that's rendered unto Jesus. You know, in life, in our homes, in our workplaces, and yes, even in our churches, there are those who will do as little as they have to do. Leaving it to the already overworked to complete. And then there are those who will do the job that's asked for in its entirety, but they will complain and bicker the whole time they do it. I'm not sure if you know anyone like that. But. <laughs> and then there are those who will not only do the job well, but they will do it with a smile and a graciousness. All three types eventually get the job done, but only one gets the job done with the heart and the spirit of Jesus. Only the one 
reflects the heart of our Lord and builds bridges to a self-centered family member, builds bridges to a hurting church member or a boss who's far from God. I mean, imagine how shocked the Roman soldier must have been to not only have a Christian go twice the distance, but to do it with a gracious smile and a spirit. I mean, everyone else did it with disgust and anger and contempt, and suddenly, here's someone who actually does it joyfully and cheerfully. And I, I could just, just hear the, the Roman soldier just kind of shaking his head and, and saying, you know, hey man, you know, what, what camel did you fall off of? I mean, what post did you run into? And the Christian smiles and says, well, I didn't fall off my camel, but I did fall off my high horse called pride. And the reason I did is because I ran not into a post, but I ran into a person who changed my life. And his name is Jesus. And that Roman soldier probably walked away snickering, muttering something about dumb religion. But you can be sure that he didn't forget. You see, that's the power of radical love. We overcome evil with good when we don't respond to insults. When we freely do more than is required. When we serve others freely. Finally, we overcome evil with good when we freely exercise generosity. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now again, is Jesus saying here when someone asks you for something, give it to him? Is he saying when someone wants to borrow, lend it to him? Someone comes up to you and says, you know, uh, wondering if I could uh, use your Lexus for a couple of years. <laughs> is that what Jesus is saying here? No. No, it's not what he's saying here. And you're all going, Whew. thank goodness. Whoa. Look carefully at verse 42. Jesus says, give to the one who asks you. He does not say, Give whatever you are asked for. There's a big difference. In fact, Daryl Johnson says, giving a person whatever they ask for could be the wrong thing to do. I mean, do you give a child whatever that child asks for? Do you give a beggar money when you know that they're probably going to spend it on booze? Jesus says, discern the real need. Establish at least a basic relationship with this person. Understand what their need is and then give. Yes, give. Give to their need. If a beggar asks for money, for food, provide him with a meal or perhaps a bag or two of groceries. Now, the main message that Jesus wants us to get from this fourth illustration is that we have generous hearts that we not be closed-fisted with the wealth that he's given to us, but, but that we always give something when someone asks us for help. 
He's saying that if your attitude is, what I have, I keep, and what is mine is mine to do with as I will, then you really don't understand the heart of God. The Bible teaches that our money and our possessions don't really belong to us. They belong to God. I mean, it is he who gave us the health, the capacity, the talents, and the ability to make money. And so we're just stewards of what he's given to us. And he's given all that we have to enjoy it, yes, but not to hoard it and stockpile it. He wants to meet the need of people through us. And so he asks us to be generous, to invest what he has given to us in people who have needs, in churches and ministries devoted to bringing all people back to right relationship with himself and meeting their needs. Make no mistake, the Bible teaches that our use of money and possessions is a decisive statement of our eternal values. If you want to know what your values are, just kind of scan through your checkbook or your Visa or MasterCard. What we do with our money and our stuff loudly affirms which kingdom we belong to. Whenever we give of our resources to further God's kingdom, we are casting a ballot, as it were, for Christ and against Satan, for heaven and against hell. Whenever we hoard them or use them selfishly or indifferently, we're really doing the opposite. You know, I often hear people say, I believe in God and everything, but I'm just not very religious. And when I've probed that a little deeper and boiled it down to its core, what I've really discovered that these people are saying is, I only believe in that which benefits me, in that which costs me nothing. And yet, if you've been listening at all to this message, it's pretty clear that Jesus doesn't give us that option. It's pretty clear that following Jesus won't cost you something. It will cost you everything. That's what he's calling for. He's calling for total surrender. For all of us. If God's kingdom is going to come to earth as it is in heaven then we're going to have to be sold out totally for Jesus. We're going to have to see others through the eyes of Jesus, and we're going to have to love others radically like Jesus. Now, why does Jesus want his disciples to be radical, non-retaliatory, second-mile lovers? Because God knows it takes a radical lover to break the cycle of interpersonal hostility. Philip Yancey says, the strongest argument in favor of forgiveness is the alternative, a world of ungrace. He says, can you imagine living in a permanent state of unforgiveness? Francis Moriak tells the story of how a man spent the last few decades, you heard that right, decades of his marriage sleeping down the hall from his wife. It was over a, se a silly sexual miscue which led each of them to conclude that they weren't wanted by the other. And so every night he waits for her to approach him for after all, it is her fault. 
but she never appears. And every night, she lies awake waiting for him to approach her because after all, he's to blame. But he never appears. Both are too proud, they're too stubborn to break the ugly, sinful cycle. And soon, not just days and months, but years. And then decades go by. And I know this is an extreme case, but many marriages, many families, friendships, staff relationships suffer from forms of this today. And maybe it doesn't go for decades. Maybe it doesn't even go for years. But even if it goes for two weeks, it's too long. And then we wonder why our Christian witness is so anemic. Why there's such little joy in our lives. The day Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him, this cycle was set in motion and it has continued unabated ever since. And one thing I'm learning is that, you know, one thing I'm learning about history is, is that we never learn from history. We read the scriptures and we say, oh my goodness, how could people be this way? And we do exactly the same thing. And folks, this will continue to grow and escalate unless someone stops it. And God wants that someone to be you and me. Someone has to take a blow or an insult or a slap without returning it. Somebody has to absorb an injustice instead of inflicting pain and hurt on someone else. Someone has to start giving generously instead of hoarding every possession and pleasure for themselves. Somebody has to pull the plug on evil and cruelty and selfishness in this world. And Jesus looks at you and me and he says, are you my follower? Really? Are you? You say you're a Christian? You're a Christ follower? Then pick up your cross and follow me. Love as I have loved you. Sacrifice as I have sacrificed for you. In your marriage, you be the one to break the icy silences when feelings have been hurt. You be the one who puts the interests of other family members and other people ahead of your own. In your workplace, you be the one to apologize and to offer to help make someone's load lighter. In your relationships, you be the one who reaches out to others. In your family, your church, your small group, you be the one who goes the extra mile with a smile. In your lifestyle, you be the one who has an eternal perspective on what you do with your money and your possessions. 
You see, the thing that makes a person a Christian is not simply saying you believe the right stuff. Our world is filled with people who say they're Christians and they, they've got their theology all figured out. It's just perfect. There it is. It just doesn't translate into life. The thing that makes a person a Christian is committing your life totally to Christ and to that you say you believe in. It's turning your life over to Jesus so he can use you to do the things that he wants to do in the lives of people in our world. To be a follower of Jesus means asking yourself every moment of every day, how would Jesus act or how would he react in this situation I'm in? What attitude would he have if this happened to him? How would he spend the time that's available to me? What would he do with the money that I have? The reality is, if, if we surrender our lives completely to Jesus, he will live this radical life through us. But it means that Life's no longer about me or you. It's about him and his call in our lives. Him invading us because we've surrendered and allowed him and asked him to do that. But friends, that will only happen if our heart's in the right place. I'll close with this. Back in 1987, an IRA bomb went off in a small town west of Belfast, leaving 11 people dead and 63 others wounded. What made this act of terrorism stand out from so many others was the response that one of the wounded, a fellow by the name of Gordon Wilson, what he said. Gordon Wilson is a devout Christian. The bomb buried Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter under five feet of concrete and brick. She died a few hours later in the hospital. A newspaper proclaimed, no one remembers what the politicians said that day. On the other hand, no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson said, I have lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk, revenge, is not going to bring Mary Wilson back to life. I shall pray tonight and every night that God will forgive them. Later, Wilson met with the IRA personally forgave them for what they had done and asked them to lay down their arms. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilt, he said. And BBC Radio reported that the world wept over Wilson's words of grace and forgiveness. You know, I think I know why the world wept that day. 
because the world thirsts for grace, for God's grace. The world's crying out for forgiveness. I don't believe that there's a person in this place, regardless of how tough and how calloused you may be on the outside, who deep down inside doesn't long to forgive and to be forgiven. But it won't happen until we're prepared to humble ourselves and to extend the same kind of grace that Gordon Wilson extended to those who took the life of his daughter until we're prepared to break the cycle and to do what seems so totally unfair but is so much like the radical love of Jesus who hung on the cross in our place in order to forgive. So we have a choice to make. We can coddle, we can nurse our hurt until it turns to hate and rage and destroys us from the inside out and probably people around us. Or we can turn our lives over to the one who forgave in us that which didn't deserve to be forgiven and who gives us the power to forgive. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? I take you back again to that least favorite person on your list. And I ask you, have you forgiven them? Are you treating them as if they had never hurt you in the first place? Or are you still making them pay in some way? Still writing them off? Forgiveness like divine love is a decision that we make. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Now I just want to remind you this is something that you can't muster up in your own strength. This is something that really only Jesus can give you the strength and the, and, and the power to do. It starts by you saying, Jesus, you're Lord, and I'm not. You're Lord and King, I'm not. I need you to invade my life. I need you to do in and through me what I can't do in my own strength. I'm trusting you. My hope is in you. Let me ask you also, when you think of this concept that Jesus taught here about doing more than what's required, serving others freely, being generous with what God's given to you, would you say your heart is in the right place? Would you say that the passion, the direction of your heart is to be what Jesus wants you to be and to do what he wants you to do and go where he wants you to go? Or would you guys have to say that there's just still way too much of you in you? Jesus wants all of you. But this is a decision that you have to make. 
And so I'm just going to give you a few moments right now to respond in whatever way it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. And I want to ask you that you don't leave here and, and just totally forget about this moment we've had together in the Word of God. Whatever He's spoken to you about, you sort this out with Him. Just take a moment right now and talk to the Lord. Father, I want to thank you for, again, the truth of your word. Lord Jesus, these teachings that you gave in this sermon, Lord, they feel so counterintuitive. They just feel so irrational, so outrageous. And yet, deep down inside, we know they're true. We know that they're the answer to the conflicts, to the hurt pain that goes on in marriages, that goes on in families, that goes on in groups of people in nations. Oh, if we we would but understand it, see it, and embrace it. As your children, you've asked us to. You've asked us to follow the way of the cross. And Lord, we recognize that in our strength, we cannot do that. And so we just submit ourselves to you anew, even right now. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would live your life of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control through us. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Would you please stand? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.